Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. A few words that are closely associated with my guest are coincidences, adrenaline rush, preparedness, situational awareness, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, army ranger, black belts, singer-songwriter, the list goes on and on. (laughs) He's also an author. He's written a book, After Disaster, Insider's Perspective from the Heart of Chaos. And I'm sure your mom was very, very proud of you. Eddie Minyard, welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Uh, Jackie, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. When someone says, oh, hi, Eddie, what do you do for a living? Do you just, like, chuckle? <laughs> you do so yeah, many things. <laughs> most of the time, I, I, I do. I'm like, it's it's so diverse. But, I mean, the the uh, the world of disaster response and emergency management is really what it's all about. Most people think that's like storm chasing, uh, which it isn't. I try to not be there when the storm shows up. Uh, we try to get there after, but it doesn't always work out like that. But the... Uh, and the other crises that we're involved with. So it's, it's difficult to explain. Um, and it was uh, as evidenced by the fact when I decided to sell my business and retire, convincing venture capitalists that they should invest in something that was so unusual and unpredictable, it was a, a near impossible task. You've been through most of the big ones, including uh, the earthquake in Haiti and Katrina, and I mean, and the tsunami in Japan, the aftermath, right, to, to help people get yes. up and running again with satellite systems and then communication systems. It's the focus that you must have for your task. It's something that you're very passionate about, helping other people. Yes, that's true. I mean, you know, the first time you really get involved in, in seeing the, the human impact of what you do, the the hook is immediately set. And, you know, I really began to realize that after 9-11, working with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and a lot of the financial houses in New York, I mean, beginning on 9-12 of that year, and you really start to see how important it is to be able to come in and bring a sense of, uh, of calm and clarity to a scenario that's otherwise very chaotic and difficult to deal with. Yeah, that's for sure. And where did you get that magic touch from your mother? <laughs> well, you know, I think she did have a lot to do with it. I just wish I had recognized it earlier in my life. You know, she uh, she certainly was a, a person who dealt with a lot of adversities and chaos in her own life and yet managed to remain calm and focused and determined as a result of some of the things that she had to experience. Isn't that fascinating? What's her name? What was her name? I'm assuming she's passed. Barbara, yeah, she passed in 1998. Uh, I still think of her every day as I drink my coffee from her coffee cup. But Mm. uh, nevertheless, I mean, her name was Barbara Joyce. Barbara Joyce Chafin was her final name, uh, married to my stepfather. But Nicholson was her maiden name. And what uh, you mentioned, challenges and obstacles that she had to deal with. Yes. I mean, she, you know, it started early for her, uh, sadly. I mean, she was uh, the child, the only child of a single mom, um, never knew her father until she was in her 50s. Um, she, uh, her mother, my grandmother, Mildred, 
was a polio victim and had multiple sclerosis. So she was a caregiver uh, as well as being a child. Uh, she turned 16 in uh, February of 1951, and I was born in April. So uh, she was a, you know, a very young mother and yet still dealing with all of that at home. And yeah. she really did have to deal with quite a bit um, in the struggles. And, and I think I sent you one photograph of this, what looks to be a, a very young woman holding a very small baby, and that's my mother as a child holding me as a child. Wow. Her life changed for so many reasons, and she was able to keep her feet grounded and, and do the best that she could. Yes, that's right. And she always worked. She was always out uh, trying to make a living. You know, I, I find the the topic of the influence of mother, uh, your topic of your program here, to be very uh, interesting to me because I view myself as sort of the product of the the collective mother, my mom, her mother, my grandmother, and my father's mother, my grandmother, who really sort of shuttled my brother and I around and did their best to impose, uh, you know, the, the right kinds of values and principles on us as, as very small children. And mom, at the same time, trying to keep her own head above water and work. You know, divorced from my dad at an even earlier age. Uh, by the time I was five, they were divorced. And so she was really kind of that forced into independence on her own in a time where, you know, that was the that was a woman who was usually expected to stay home and rattle in pots and pans, I think, in the 1950s and the early and mid-50s, and she was out making a living. I imagine your mom was blindsided with the divorce, and, and here she was alone raising a child, and I assume that she had the support of all the maternal, paternal grandparents, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I mean, it was a different time and place then, and um, she was not chastised. We're, we're from Alabama originally, and it was, you know, honey, you're a member of the family, and that was kind of the way it worked. And, you know, we spent, my brother and I spent much of our time with uh, one or the other of the grandmothers, one living in Florida and one in Alabama, and mom living primarily with her mother after the divorce in Florida. So we were shuttled back and forth until they could figure it out uh, by, by putting us on a Greyhound bus and telling the driver to take care of these two boys until they get to Florida. <laughs> How old were you, do you time. think? How old were you, seven uh, or ten? I was six or seven, yeah, six or seven years old, maybe eight in that time frame. But up until, you know, she married my stepfather when I was about ten years old, so... Yeah, so it was uh, just a different kind of world back then. So you kind of had to grow up quickly, too, right, with that kind of stuff of being shuttled around or put on a bus with your brother? Yeah, it was it was kind of like that. You're sort of forced into, um, you know, it, it, nobody really thought about it as such, Jackie. At that time, it was just this is the way it is. But you do gain some degree of independence and probably a bit of obstinance <laughs> along the way. And, uh, and, you know, understand your limitations. So there were rules, and you paid attention to adults, quote-unquote. Um, and it didn't matter which adults. If they were designated as your caregiver of the day, that's who you paid attention to. But you do learn from that. You do learn that, um, you know, you need to be independent and on your own and, and figure some things out for yourself. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the younger generations have that same capacity, <laughs> meaning I don't think there's the respect for the adult or I don't know. It's definitely different now than it was back then. 
You definitely listen yeah. to adults. <laughs> I, I, I hear the same thing. I mean, you know, I can tell you from my own kids growing up, I can't tell you how many times I heard them say to others, you ain't the boss of me, you know, oh. <laughs> regardless of the, of, you know, the, the, the strata that they were in at the time. So what kind of work did your mom do to help support you, you and your brother? Wow. So, I mean, she did pretty much everything that a person could imagine doing. She was a waitress for the longest time when we were early on. And, um, she worked in, you know, as a receptionist and she really had, you know, obviously having me at the age of 16, meaning she was married by 15, she didn't finish high school. Uh, she ultimately much, much later in life, uh, did get a GED diploma, but she worked in the, the hardest of jobs and the most menial of jobs and worked her way up through her own initiative and her own drive to uh, becoming a, you know, an office administrator in a major hospital in Illinois to ultimately becoming a, the, an office manager for a trucking company and then becoming the first female terminal manager of any trucking company in the United States. Wow. And it was all pushing herself. She was she really was something. Wow, she was definitely you know, driven. Well, you know, and, and you talked about adversity. So I think probably, you know, other than the all the years she was married to my stepfather, but that's a whole different topic and you probably need to rename your entire program if we went into that one. <laughs> but the, uh, the nevertheless, I mean other than dealing with some of the day to day that she had to deal with through that relationship. In uh, 1971, she was assaulted in her home, sexually assaulted in her home by a burglar that she surprised she came home for lunch. And she was, um, she was assaulted and tortured for hours and left tied to the bed uh, with stockings for my stepfather to find her when he came home. And rather than shrinking into her shell, which, you know, she certainly had the right to do that, she became a very strong and vocal advocate for women's rights and, and um, went, went on television and had interviews and, you know, really started uh, to get out and discuss these things with the world to fight it back and to learn, you know, new things. So really, that's, that's when I really began to see the, and understand, I think, the true strength of my mother. How old were you when this happened, do you think? I was uh, 20, 20 years old, 20, 21 oh. years old. I just returned from the service myself. So. Oh, that must have been so tragic for all of you. It, it was, yeah, yeah. But, but she was remarkable. How we dealt with it. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Where does she get that strength from? You know, I think the, the fact that uh, you know, if you go back one generation and look at her mother, my grandmother, who, as I said, was a polio victim and had multiple sclerosis, I never saw her when she wasn't in braces or with crutches or ultimately in a wheelchair, but I also never saw her when she wasn't smiling and had the most radiant uh, outward appearance and you know, took care of other people's children even though she had that, those conditions herself. And just was all about, you know, moving forward and doing things that, you know, she wouldn't accept the fact that she had limitations and just moving it forward. So I know that, you know, that certainly came, that strength came from her side. Um, and, and my mother definitely inherited it as she went forward. 
Did she advocate for sexual assault victims and survivors for many years? Yeah, she did, uh, up until the point where it just sort of, you know, I think she, ultimately, that was her way of coping in the beginning with it. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, her, her first means of coping was <laughs> she was bound and determined to find this fellow and track him down and put him in his grave. But she, ultimately, she, she, through her own counseling and working with the police department in Moline, Illinois, um, they were wonderful with her and for her and helped her to you know, get some counseling herself and then to provide that, that advocacy to others and, you know, to get vocal about it. I mean, you know, go on the local television channels and so on and speak about it in the, an interview format and, and really kind of move it forward. And she did that until I think she had developed and processed it to the point where she was okay, you know, to, to deal with things on her own. So she didn't continue the advocacy in a, in a vocal way, but she continued to show the strength that she developed from having to deal with it. Wow, that's not easy at all. That's very impressive. Barbara, you are spectacular. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I'm sure that's just uh, one of the major obstacles in her life. I mean, was it the kind of thing that you guys would go to work with her too sometimes, or you would just always be with the grandparents? Well, occasionally, I mean, when she was working as a waitress, and it's not unusual for my brother and I to be having hamburger, french fries, and chocolate malts at her restaurant. That's pretty <laughs> good. to visit her at lunchtime, but yeah, you know, by the time she started working in the trucking industry, um, you know, we were, I was relatively local to where she lived, and we got to know some of the folks there, and, you know, her bosses and the other players around there. We'd drift in occasionally just to say hello. But it wasn't like we would go to work, you know, as kids with my mom. She didn't have that kind of career going for her. Was it hard when you made the decision to go overseas to to leave her? Was that a, a tough decision? Or you... No. no. It, was, it, I, it wasn't about her so much, but it was about the relationship she had with my stepfather and the one I didn't have with him. You know, I actually left home uh, a couple of years before, I um, I went overseas. I moved back to Alabama. I was living with my grandmother, raising a lot of hell, and you know, <laughs> and and you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, someplace between a, a hippie, a motorcycle gang member, and a soldier, and the soldier won out. So, at the end of the day, uh, but she, I, I actually, uh, I quit high school too in my sophomore year, and. She actually had a sign for me. I took my Army physical on my 17th birthday. So, you know, I, 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 some people look back on it now and say, man, you must have had a death wish. You know, who knows? Maybe I did. But that wasn't, wasn't in my mind at the time. I just had ambition. And, um, you know, so it wasn't really a big thing. It was not, it, we, we had a relationship that if it was one year, if it was five minutes, if it was, you know, four years, we picked right up where we left off. There was never any lack of love from her to me, and I knew it, and, and um, vice versa. You mentioned to me that your birth name is Eddie. It's not Edward or Ed, as I had mistakenly called you. It is okay, because every... And you know what? I call myself Edward for decades, because it wasn't... Eddie's not very professional, now, is it? It doesn't sound that way. So, you know, I sort of adopted the... Uh, the nom de plume of, uh, of Edward, and, and of course most people shorten that to Ed. But at the end of the day, the name on my birth certificate and my driver's license uh, is Eddie. 
and they uh, the story behind that is kind of funny because I didn't really know it for until I was sixty maybe. But my mother had always told me that I was named after Eddie Fisher because she liked Eddie Fisher. My brother's first name is Johnny, and she said he was named after Johnny Ray, another singer from that era. Well, it turns out, when after all is said and done and getting the rest of the story from other members of the family, that my dad actually named me after Eddie Lopat, who was a pitcher for the New York Yankees. All right. So yes. go figure. So. <laughs> so which one is it? You're named after both uh, of them. <laughs> I, yeah, that's, it depends on how you want to look at it. But, you know, I do have a, an autographed picture of Eddie Lopat hanging in my office, so I I kind of thought, well, you know, a southern boy from Alabama who's hung up so much on the Yankees that he named his son after. Interesting. Interesting. That's kind of a funny story. Did your mom have a good sense of humor? She did. She had a better sense of humor before we moved to the north. You know, my stepfather was a military guy, and we ultimately wound up, when he got out of the service, uh, moving to Illinois where he had family. And her entire persona really kind of shifted from this um, more like happy-go-lucky, fun-loving girl to, you know, much more serious. I don't think she was ever really happy uh, in that game. But but you know what? You'd get her out with a cane fishing pole and and uh, sitting by the riverside, and she was a she was a hoop. And as she came into herself and got you know really become started to. Uh, I guess mature and, and become comfortable in her own skin. She, everybody you would ever talk to about my mom would use that term. She was a hoot. She was a piece of work because she had no filter at all, and um, and would just as soon bust on you as not. But she would also be the biggest uh, your biggest fan in the corner. Did she often she? had people supporting her, right? You said she got married at young age and the family was there. Did people yeah. think that, um, you know, she had made some bad decisions in her life or she was pretty confident? If she if she was a, a hood, she must have had some confidence. Yeah, she she did have a lot of confidence. And, and, you know, how much of it was false bravado and how much of it was true confidence is, it's hard to tell there's a line. I mean, I I never saw her shaken about challenges that were put upon her. She just kind of knuckled on and get to it. And, you know, as a result of that, she she pushed a lot of, of confidence-building things towards my brother and I, too. I mean, we always had chores to do. We always had things that we were expected to to do around the house and deliver on. And as re- in return, we... And we'd leave in the morning and in the summertime, and me and I'd come home all day until the streetlights came on. And that was cool, too, because she she instilled that level of you know independence and confidence on us as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful attribute to teach your children. Obviously, they have to learn <laughs> that there are some, yeah. some sort of boundaries, but I think that's a wonderful attribute. Did she ever feel sorry for herself? Was she ever to the point of breaking that she's just like, why Why do I have to work so no, hard? Why do I have to... Never never saw her get like that. I mean, I just saw her aiming for the bigger goal, you know, and, uh, and you know, ultimately at the end, I mean, she did very well. She had, she worked in the trucking business, as I said, and she independently started a company doing um, medical billing for, you know, certainly way, not a lot of computers involved in that time, a lot of forums 
involved with doing um, billing for dental offices and medical offices, and she she did okay financially, and then immediately went and gambled it all the way on riverboats, which was that was her her thrill. She she got to the point where she was able to drive her big Cadillac cars and go to the casino, and and every bit of it was through blood, sweat, and tears. So no, she never felt sorry for herself, never laid down, just basically determined, you know, I have no I have no limitations and no boundaries. This is just where I am right now, kind of thing. Wow, wonderful. And I, I think I inherited a lot of that from her, and frankly. That's, that's been did. my attitude and my own mantra is, is, you know, let's just get on with it. Did she do well at the casinos? <laughs> Well, I mean, when she did, she was very, very vocal about it. I think I sent you a picture of her, you know, cashing in a ten thousand dollar win. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like everything else, though, I uh, I believe that if he tallied, <laughs> they don't build those casinos because people win all the time, right? right. The house it, always wins. Celebrate the celebrate the big wins and and forget about the losses. Oh, that is so much fun. Good for her. And when it came to thinking that you needed a little guidance or advice for the career, I know you went off to the Army and all that. Was that her place, or she let you do what you felt you needed to do? She was always interested in what I was doing, but really never gave me uh, guidance in in what I should be doing. She never really pointed to a direction. I can't say that from that perspective, that you know, inspiring me to be this or to be that, was all a part of it. It always inspiring me to be confident in, in what I was doing. You know, if, if you get slapped in the face by it, then do something else, figure it all out. That was more the kind of level of support that she gave. I mean, obviously, if if things were bad, you know, she was the one that would slide me the $20 bill every now and again, right, when things were tough, when I first came home from the service or before I went to the service. You know, don't tell, you, don't tell your stepdad. Kind of thing. Oh, it's the best. But, uh, yeah, right. You know, and it was good. And she went on um, providing that kind of leadership example. That that you know, independent, carve your own path, break the ice, and move forward. I mean, even right up to to her death. I mean, she developed um, something that was called crest. Syndrome. Each of the letters stands for something, and none of it's good. But there's really there's no cure for it. My brother and I had her to Mayo Clinic and a number of other places. And at Mayo, they basically said, "Look, Barbara, you you got three years maybe left, and we can put you on these experimental drugs. You won't, it'll mess up your quality of life, but you may be able to help other people as a result of doing that." And her response was, "Screw those other people. I'm going to get on with my life and enjoy what I've got left." So. <laughs> She suffered through, you know, the the challenges of that, even to the point of having to be on oxygen all the time, and and never lost her positive mental attitude about the whole thing. Uh, really, was only hospitalized once, and I was away and called her, and when I found out she'd been hospitalized, and said, "Look, I'm coming there to see you." It was a Wednesday night. She said, "No, you're not. I'll be out of here on Friday." And she watched them. I guess basketball game with my niece that night and never woke up the next day. Right to the very end, she was herself, 100%. Wow, so she was able to show love toward you guys, you and your brother, I'm assuming, had good relationships with your mom? Oh, yeah. But she supported you. Yeah, Tim, he said, yeah, he'll tell you that she was your favorite, but I really was. (laughs) 
depending on what you believe, maybe I'll get to meet her one day <laughs> in our next life. She sounds wonderful. Yeah, she was. She was something. Do you have any particular sayings that you can remember her using? I do, but I'm not going to say them over the air in this politically correct climate that we all live in today. <laughs> no real filters, but she was, uh, she was, she was something else. But basically, you know, her, her goal was, her basic advice to me always was, honey, just keep your love about you, you know? And that was, that's kind of her. Mm, that's a good one. That's like a really good one. Is uh, religion or spirituality a part of your life growing up? Well, in a way, I guess it kind of was. I mean, we were, you know, down-home Southern folks, so we we had a, a whole litany of uh, religious experiences from the earlier earliest days where everybody in the family were uh, Upper Cumberland Presbyterian and went to these tent revivals and uh, all of that through, you know, significant focus uh, later on on Paul Roberts. In fact, my grandmother swears that she, my maternal grandmother swore that she cured me from stuttering by uh, putting her hand on the television and on my head when Oral Roberts was giving a sermon and that knocked the stutter right out of me. I don't know what happened, but the... <laughs> Then she married my stepfather, who was strong Southern Baptist, and her, his brother was the dean of the Billy Graham College of Evangelism in, uh, in uh, you know, whatever they are, Louisville. Wow. Uh, and then when we moved north, though, it really sort of went away. I mean, we were, Johnny and I were still conscripted to take a bus to Sunday school, uh, which we did, in a, you know, in the Baptist church. But they, even that went away after, you know, we got into our early teen years. So really, it really wasn't a strong element of, of our family life. It was or was not? It was, right? To a it was in part. the beginning, yeah. And then it just sort of dwindled away you know, after that. You know, everyone was pretty staunch Christian, um, you know, good Southern Bible thumpers there in the beginning, but uh, it just sort of went away. Well, it, it certainly, I mean, you have a huge heart. You're always giving so much. And and I admire that and respect that so much. And the work that I've done and some of the encounters that I've had, you know, you used the word coincidence when you did your introduction, and I'm not sure that there are any. I think that it took me a long time to finally wake up to the fact that there was a lot more going on. You can call it divine intervention, you know, divine direction, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, you know, I... I been in places and done things and had encounters that if I had written them down and submitted them to Hollywood, they would say, we can't make that movie. It's impossible. Nobody would ever buy into it. And I'd have to agree. But yet there it was. Um, and and how does that all happen? So it's taken me a lot longer to come around to realizing that than I probably should have had. Or actually accepting it, I think, that I probably should have. But you've seen you, humanity. You've seen humanity and human nature really shine through. You talk about it in your book. I mean, even the people of Puerto Rico who really struggled from the hurricane and yes. the, the one touching story, well, not the one touching story, the story of the little boy in in Haiti when he was carrying the 50-pound bag of rice. Mm -hmm. And you were able to help him. Can you, you want to just tell that story briefly? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was uh, one of the major 
giveaways where we would come with our, our trucks full of rice and, and oil and beans and, and water. And this uh, kid, I mean, literally the size of one of my grandkids, a small, diminutive kid, and he's dragging this 50-pound bag of rice. And I picked it up, but where he led me to, I took him by the hand. I mean, I don't speak good Spanish or French, but I was able to get the point across to him what I wanted to be able to do. And the the shelter, if you want to call it that, where these folks were, were basically a you saw it from the air, it would look like a patchwork quilt. It was just blanket and tarps and blankets and sheets and whatever they could stand up to keep the sun off of uh, of this, you know, Warren is the best way to describe it. And the kid took me by the hand and led me in throughout all of this thing. And, you know, and it was... Uh, it was a situation which could have gone south in a lot of different ways, but didn't, and walked me all the way through to where his family was. And we gave him the, the rice, and that kid stood there and looked right up at me and gave me a, a man's handshake, looking me dead in the eye. You know, merci, merci, merci. It was, uh, it was quite moving in that regard. And, you know, it kind of really puts a perspective on... Uh, what this is all about, and you know why why you do these things, and there have been these punctuating moments in every major event that I've been involved with. You know, most recently, since 2014, it's been the uh, immigration unaccompanied alien children scenario at the at the southern border. We've been dealing with those shelters, you know, for since 2014, and you see things and you experience things in there that you really you get to scratch your head and. And say number one, why is this? But number two, man, I'm glad I'm able to do something positive in the light of of these children. Yeah, wow. I think um, Barbara Joyce did a really great job, <laughs> and uh, and you should be really proud because I think you you carry a lot of your mom in you. Well, you know, I I uh, I wish it. I had recognized it a lot sooner than I did. That's the best way I can put it with my mom. Uh, and just how great and influential she was on me, uh, I would have been much more appreciative a lot for a lot longer time, maybe while she was actually alive. But she knew. There was no question about what, how, what she knew about how I felt about her. Eddie Minyard, his book, After Disaster, Insider's Perspective from the Heart of Chaos. Thank you for being a part of my podcast, Eddie. Jackie, it's an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to talk a bit about my mom and reflect on some of the things that you, know, you don't always reflect on on a daily basis. So thank you. Thank you.